Let's open our Bibles now then to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, and tonight we'll consider verses 6 through 8, but actually we'll only get to the first word or so in verse 8, and then we'll finish that up next week. You'll see why when we get there. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. God has, in the outworking of his purpose, used individuals in all of our lives to minister to us. We admire and cherish these individuals of great faith and faithfulness and appreciate beyond words the service that they have rendered to the Lord, especially the service that they've rendered on our behalf. But there does come a time when the Lord chooses to call those folks home. And when that happens, life goes on. Since the future is not as perspicuous as the past, with us as it is with God, sometimes we panic and we wonder, what's to become of my spiritual life? And now that the one who fed me spiritually for so long is no longer here. In the moment of that, there's a tendency to make God small. We forget that it's God who led us to that person in the first place, and that it was the Holy Spirit who worked through them to minister to us. We insult both the omniscience and the omnipotence of God, not to mention His love when we think that way. God is big enough to handle the situation. There will always be a next generation of ministers until God calls the church home at the rapture. You must never forget this. God will take care of you. If you've ever thought that, I understand. There was a time, probably 20, 20 years or so ago, that I sat in a congregation and I wondered, what's going to happen to me after my pastor retires or after my pastor goes to the Lord, one who had fed me so faithfully for so long? And I've got to tell you, the, the, the Lord's sense of irony and even sense of humor, if you prefer to look at it that way, I never in a million years would have thought that I would have been one of the ones that he used as the next generation of pastors. Never would I have thought that. But God's a lot bigger than we think he is sometimes. And he's not going to leave us orphans in that sense or any other sense. When our Lord left, he brought the Holy Spirit. And when any individual pastor is called home or, or called somewhere else to another minister, or whatever it may be, or retires, God's not going to leave you pastorless. He's not going to let you starve. There will always be a next generation. It's kind of like a high school football team in some ways. You know, a high school football team replenishes their talent every single year. And sometimes you can't see it coming up. Because when a, when a young fellow is a freshman or a sophomore high school football player and you compare them to the juniors and the seniors and you think, this is what we got coming up next year, we're going to be in big trouble. Well, you would if they were still freshmen and sophomores. But by the time that year rolls around, they've been trained, they've been prepared, and now they're going to end up being the juniors and the seniors. And then one of these days, two or three years from now, they're going to be the ones graduating and everybody's going to say, well, who are we going to replace them with? The point I want to make is God's big enough to take care of it. God loves you. And he's used faithful people to minister to you. And he will continue to minister to you through other faithful people. You see, by the time we get to this part of 2 Timothy, the time has come for Paul to die. And he knows that. 
it's come it's it's come become the time for him to to pass the torch on to Timothy and to others. And Timothy's got to be ready for that. So Paul has, in the, in the previous verse, encouraged Timothy to be sober in all things, to do the work of an evangelist. And then he says, fulfill your ministry. Timothy has a job to do. Timothy can't panic. He can't quit. He can't sit in the corner and shake for fear because now he's going to have to be more on center stage than he was. But it's time. Paul's leaving it's time for Timothy to step up. Read along these verses with me, if you would. For I am ready, Paul says, or I am already, Paul says, being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Here in verse 6, Paul writes, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Remember where he is when he writes this. This is his second imprisonment. The book of Acts ends with Paul's first imprisonment. Just kind of, kind of leaves us with him there. But we know that he got out of prison that time and spent probably another six years on this earth and, and wrote these two letters in, in during the scope of those two years, he, there were other things he did. The first Roman imprisonment that Paul suffered was more like a house arrest. And I'm not saying it was nothing. Uh, it, it's, it's bad any time you're confined. But the first imprisonment was nothing like the second one. In the second imprisonment, we understand Paul to be in the Mamertine dungeon in Rome. Or at least that's what early church tradition tells us uh, where, he, where he was. This was not a pleasant place. We also know that Paul was in chains when he was in this prison. And it was dark and damp and smelly and, and very bad there. But yet Paul still can write these words and he's still joyful uh, to be where he is. But it looks very much like the end has come for him. So he writes, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. This is a beautiful expression of his present circumstances. It gives us a, something of a glimpse of his of the inner workings of his soul. He's comparing his current circumstances to the libation of wine that was poured out beside the altar in Old Testament worship. The prescription for this offering is made in Numbers chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. We won't take the time to go there tonight, but you might note that and maybe read it before you go to bed. It'll give you some of the prescriptions as, as to part of this particular aspect of worship. But the wine, Numbers chapter 15, verses 1 through 10, the wine was gradually poured out. And this was, for the most part, at the end of that particular sacrifice. The wine was poured out, and that signified that that particular sacrificial service was over. So you see the beauty of Paul's metaphor here. He said, this, this is my life. I'm the drink offering, and now, now the end has come. I'm, I'm being poured out. Just like that glass of wine. Now it doesn't mean, or like that chalice of wine. It doesn't mean that it's it's over at that instant, but it's a process, isn't it? Some folks, the Lord takes home instantaneously. Other other folks go through a process of dying. Now you could make a case if you want to get technical with me that we all go through a process of dying from the day that we're born. Granted, but I'm talking about there. There are some people that you know that that have accidents, and the Lord takes them instantaneously. There are other people that get cancer. And, and the, the dying process 
becomes just that. It, be, it becomes a process where people have more time to think. Not only do they have more time to think, but those who love them uh, suffer with them as they watch, watch that process go on. Well, Paul is in the midst of a process. By the time he gets to the end, true, he, he will be executed uh, in, in an instant. He'll be taken outside the city of Rome. He was a Roman citizen. That would have been the form of execution for any Roman citizen, and he would have been beheaded on that road outside of Rome. There's a place uh, the Roman, that uh, the Italians have marked where that uh, at least supposedly took place. But the process has already started. you see this? Paul knows. When he was in that first Roman imprisonment, he wasn't sure. He wrote a letter to the Philippians and said, maybe I'm going to get out, maybe I'm not going to get out. I can't really decide if I want to get out or if I don't want to get out. It would be better for me to die and go to heaven, but it's better for you if I get out. And he wasn't being arrogant. He was just saying, I, I know there's more that I have to do. It would be better for me, it would be better for you, rather, if I got to get out and, and, and do more ministry. The Lord chose to get him out that time. It seems like there's a hint that he realizes he is going to be released. Only a hint in that in Philippians that he will be released. But here, whatever's happened, whatever word that he's gotten from whoever's talked to the emperor and come and whispered through that window or maybe had visited him sometime, he's gotten word that he's not getting out this time. And so that's why he says, I'm already being poured out. You see the beauty of that. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The, the wine was poured out gradually. It wasn't dumped out. It was, it was poured out in a gradual way, in the same way that Paul is going through the dying process. I have, I have friends, and, and may, I don't know, maybe I'm this way too, that, that would really wish the Lord would just, just take me right away. Boom. Just like that. So I, so, I, so I don't have to suffer that process. And a lot of us are that way. And I know folks that have gone that way, and I certainly, you know, we all know folks that haven't. But, but it's, it could have been stressful to Paul, couldn't it? If, if the process had lingered and lingered and lingered, I think Paul had the maturity to handle that. Now, I'm not making any kind of statement that those who are taken quickly don't, and those who are not taken quickly do have the maturity. But in this case, I think that it allowed Paul to express his maturity. And I really appreciate being able to hear his final words. This is a very poignant picture of the gradual ebbing away of Paul's life and the fact that he is presenting the entirety of his life to God as an offering. Now, he's already done this, but this is the final act of sacrifice on his part. You see the beauty of that? His whole life has been a sacrifice, and now he uses this metaphor to show that now that the final act of sacrifice is coming to a close. He views the entirety of his life as, as an offering that has been already given to God. And this is the final act of that play. Paul knows that he'll die soon, and in a very real sense, as I've said, the process has already begun. And these verses, actually not just this one, but verses 6 through 8 in their entirety, express his spiritual legacy and the confident expectation of his future with Christ. But even now, even in the midst of his trouble, Paul is Christ-focused. And he encourages Timothy, in the face of persecution, to be steadfast, to have endurance, just as he remained true to his calling, despite the sufferings that he endured. Don't you love that? Even at the last minute, look who Paul is thinking about. He's thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ and Timothy, Christ's servant, and encouraging Timothy to, to pick up the flag and take the colors forward. It would be real easy for him to say, you know, this is not fair. I have served the Lord all my life, and this is how I die? 
They're gonna, they're, I'm going to spend the last several months, if not a year of my life, in this horrible prison, and then they're going to march me out and cut my and, and take my head off my shoulders. Poor, poor, pitiful me. But he doesn't do that. He ministers right up until the end. In general, and I do say in general, there are two reasons why a Christian dies at any particular time. And really, if we went in broad general categories, I can only see these two. Everything fits into one of these two in one way or another. The first reason, first of all, we can go home to glory and to our Lord because our work is finished here on earth. In Second Peter chapter 1, verse 14, Peter says, Shortly I must put off this tabernacle, or this tent, meaning his human body, even as the Lord has revealed to me. And then Paul declares here, for I am now being... Offered as a drink offering, the time of my departure or my death is at hand. Now, he doesn't say death here. I think this is interesting. It, it's a departure for him. Just, just like you're getting on a jet plane and, and going to Australia. You're still you. And those of us that are left behind need to remember that. They're still them. They still exist. The same personality that they always had, just minus the sinful nature. And just like... If someone was going to get on a plane and, and fly Qantas from here to, I guess they still fly, from here to Australia, the reality of the, uh, the matter is that all of us are going to enter a plan, that same flight one of these days, and we're going to meet them there. We're going to meet them there. I want you to, don't ever forget that. For, for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's just a change of location of residence. But I shouldn't say just, should I? It's a change of location and residence. And by the time we get there, we're, we're getting there into paradise. And those that go before us have a great pleasure in front of them. So great that I suspect that they're not mourning for lack of our presence. There's no insult to any of us, but they're in the presence of the Lord. They're in a place of no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, no more death. The old things have passed away. It's fantastic for them. And, and since we're in a different dimension of time when we get to eternity than we are now. And technically speaking, philosophically, time can be defined as a sequence of events. So there is an aspect of time in eternity because there's one event that follows the next, but it's not the same kind of time that we have. And I suspect since, since they're in the Lord's kind of time then, in a year's, you know, days, as a year, a thousand years, all that stuff, I suspect this is just how I've always wondered and, and speculated, but it is based upon knowledge of the Bible. I suspect that our loved ones have gotten to heaven in this incredible, wonderful place the aspects of it being designed just for them that would fit their greatest desires that are actually even far and above anything they can ask or think. Have you ever thought about that clause? I have a great imagination about what heaven would be like, and I can't come close to what it's really going to be like. There's not a one of us. There's not a one of us that's going to get to heaven, and we're not going to say, wow. You know, nobody's going to get there and say, you know, just like I thought. I'll tell you what, I had it all pictured just in my mind. The mountain's right there, the lake's right over here. Looks just like Bialtenberg, Switzerland, just like I thought. No, you know what's going to happen to us? We're going to take that first step on that shore. We're going to breathe that first breath of heavenly air. And we're going to look around, and even in, our, even in that interim body before the resurrection body, we're going to be blown away. You're not even going to have words to express if there is somebody standing next to you. You're not going to be able to say, look at how beautiful it is. Beautiful won't do it. And then somewhere, somewhere, I, I just suspect that our Lord will be there waiting for us. 
to welcome us in tenderly. You know, there's not any pearly gates, you know, that Peter stands at to decide who comes and who goes. That's, uh, there, there are pearly gates in the New Jerusalem and all that. But I'm talking about when we get to heaven, you're just going to be there. So, yes, we do mourn for those that go before us. But, but in the midst of that mourning, that, that lasts decades sometimes, I understand that. But in the midst of the mourning, doesn't there have to be just a little piece of us deep down inside that is really thrilled? Now, if we're thrilled that one of our loved ones gets to take a great vacation to Australia, and we know they're having a good time, even though we may miss them, we're glad that they're having a good time, in that small way, can't that project out almost ad infinitum into just really being thrilled that someone we love that much is in that place? And also knowing that you're going to see them again. Now, that's one of the things I stress when I do funerals, and, and that is that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's going to be a homecoming like no homecoming's ever been. And Paul knows that. So that's why there is a tinge of sadness in his letter here. I, I won't deny that. Just like there's a little tinge or twins, rather, of sadness anytime someone moves on down the road in ministry and looks back and says, well, I, th- I think this is, it's over now. You know, it looks like the Lord's taken me out one way or another through retirement or through death or whatever. You know, you, you look back and, and everybody's going to say, you know, I could have done more. You know, like, like, you know, remember at the end of Schindler's List when he finally realizes he could have bought one more? We're all going to, everybody looks back and says, I could have done that better. I could have done that better. You know, and Paul, I'm sure, thought the same thing. But there's, a, there's a, an aspect of comfort here, isn't there? He knows it's over with. He looks back, and it doesn't seem like there's any regrets for him, at least none that he's willing to put down on paper. You know what I see as one of the biggest tragedies in life? It would be, it would be to live your whole life as a Christian, with all the support that we have as Christians, with the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit, and then get to the end of it and have to honestly say on your deathbed, I wasted my life. Wouldn't that be a tragedy? And it need not happen. For anybody here, if you've got another day left on this earth, live it for the Lord, you won't have to say that. At least, I, at least I lived the way that Christ wanted me to live. But there are two reasons. The first reason why God calls us home at a particular time, now I'm talking about believers, is that our work is finished. John, in John chapter 17, our Lord himself said, I finished the work which you gave me to do. On the cross, he said also, it is finished. There were actually two it is finished with our Lord. One's in John 17, one's in John 19. The first it is finished relates to the work of revealing the Father. The second it is finished relates to the work of saving mankind. But if anybody ever did complete the work that his Father sent him to do with, with perfection, it's our Lord. Nobody else completes it with perfection. And that's not what I'm... What I'm uh, saying here at all. Um, this doesn't mean that all the work that could have been done has been accomplished in terms of believers, but rather that all the work that has been ordained for us to do has been accomplished. And when that's done, the Lord's going to take us home. That's why it doesn't matter who you are, how old you are, what kind, of, what kind of health you're in. If you're still here, it means God's still got something for you to do. So don't have a pity party at home thinking there's nothing more for me. If you're still here, God's got something for you to do. And that may be if you're flat laying on your back in a quadriplegic, it may mean pouring your heart out to God in prayer 18 hours a day. But he's still got something for you to do. It may mean, it may mean being an encouragement to someone who comes and visits you, thinking that they're going to find someone who's in utter despair. And when they find somebody that's not in utter despair, they ask you why. You can tell them that. But God has something for you to do. 
some folks die very young. But in that case, the Lord uses their death for his glory. Their work, even, even of the person who dies young, the work that they do ends up echoing throughout eternity. Long after they've received their transfer to heaven. I know of cases where believers have died at a young age, and many of their peers received Jesus Christ as Savior as a result of their death, the way they lived their life, their death, and the funeral message that was preached. And I promise you, those results reverberate on down the corridors of time into eternity. These believers will be justly rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, there's a second reason why believers are taken home at a particular time, and that is that a Christian can die prematurely. And I use that word advisedly. It's the best word I could come up with. But prematurely under divine discipline. This is a sobering thought, a very sobering thought. But as I speak that thought, let me warn you about something. And please take it very seriously. Extreme caution should be exercised in making an evaluation that that's the reason a particular believer died, or that that's a reason a particular believer died that way. If that's your opinion, perhaps it's better kept a private matter. Unnecessary harm and hurt feelings can come into families and communities and churches where assumptions that a believer has died, the sin that leads unto death, as John calls it in 1 John chapter 5, when, when those kind of assumptions are made, when we don't have all the facts, the nature of a person's death does not determine whether they died in an act of God's grace because their work is finished, or whether they died as an act of God's discipline because they turned away from him. And even if it's, I'm just going to make this plea to you, even if it seems rather obvious to you, it's best, best, best to keep that internal and not to express it. Because you don't know. God hasn't appointed us as the judge or the jury. And, and when, when you have courtroom trials, juries usually get a certain amount of facts, but even they don't have all the facts. I, I was on a capital murder jury some years back after we found the, the young man guilty and sentenced him to life or 60 years without parole, whatever it was, 40, which was the maximum that he could get. Um, we talked to the judge, and I remember asking the judge, because we had some members of the jury panel that, that were not going to find him guilty, and, and I was able to convince them that he was. The worst thing that the defense ever did was put me on the jury. They thought since I was a preacher I'd have some sympathy for him, but I didn't because he was guilty and he confessed. I mean, what, what, what were they thinking? But nevertheless, I asked the judge just for the sake of the other people who had some doubts. I said, you, you know more about this case than we do because you got to hear a lot of evidence that, you know, you ask us to disregard or leave the room or whatever. What would you have done? He said, well, I'm, I'm glad that you came up with the verdict that you did. It's the right verdict, believe me. But it w- I'm, I'm a little surprised it took you five hours to come up with that verdict. It would have taken me five minutes but granted, yes, I did have more information than you did. And then he told us what some of that, you know, just in general, not real specific what some of it was. But the point is God's the only one that has the information. So just be real careful, be real cautious in making that evaluation. But you can ponder it in your heart because the sin that leads to death that John speaks about, the, 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 the line that one can cross that the writer of the book of Hebrews speaks about where there is there no longer, there's no longer any repentance after that, Those are very sober warnings, and so we should ponder them in our heart. 
But in terms of being judgmental, we've got to be very, very careful. First uh, Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30 says, For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. We also have an illustration from this in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira uh, that uh, wanted to kind of be well thought of like Barnabas was in the early church. Barnabas sold a piece of land and gave all the proceeds to the church. It was his right to do that. He could have kept some back. Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of land. They keep some back. So far, so good. But then they pretend that they've given it all so that they would be well thought of like Barnabas was. And... Peter challenges them with the fact that they've lied to God, and then in the next verse that they've lied to the Holy Spirit, one of, those, one of these most direct passages about the deity of the Spirit in the entirety of the Word of God. And both of them are struck dead immediately in, 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 in an act of divine discipline. And then in 1 John chapter 5, verse 16, there is a sin unto death. And that's a sobering reality. There is a sin unto death. And, and he says, I do not say that you should pray for it. That's how bad it is. There is a sin that leads to death. Most likely this is not a single sin. Most likely it's not. Most likely it's a pattern of sin with a refusal to repent over an extended period of time. And I think that is what is in view in 1 John chapter 5. But I repeat again that it is, God's not asking me to be a judge of that. He's not asking you to be the jury of that. We need to be very, very careful in asserting that someone's son or daughter or mother or father or friend has died the sin unto death. We just don't know. Um, that being said, let's look at verse 7. He's already said, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. I think this is one of the most beautiful metaphors for death in the entirety of the Word of God. Isn't it, isn't it poignant? My, the time for my departure has come. <laughs> it's, just like, uh, it's just like being at the airport. And they've called your flight. And your loved ones can't go down that runway. You know, they've got to stay back there. The time has come. And you look up there and it says, now boarding yours. Well, that's where, he's at. That's where he is right now. He's, he's, it's time to walk down that runway and board the flight. So what are his thoughts as he walks the runway or walks the, uh, the, way to the uh, gateway down to the terminal? He says, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I have kept the faith. Now, all three of those verbs are in a, in a particular tense that would indicate that there is some finality to it. You know, it, it's something that, that began in the past with results that continue up until the present time. And it does, all three of those phrases indicate some finality. What I mean by that is it looks like the fight's over for Paul. It's, it's in a process, but it looks like it's, the fight has come to a close. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Using what is probably more of an athletic metaphor than a military metaphor, Paul says that he's fought the good fight. Now, listen carefully. It's not only that he has fought well, but also that the struggle of Christian ministry is inherently good and worth the battle. You see both aspects of that? It's not only that he has fought well, but that the struggle of Christian ministry is inherently good. So if he says, I fought the good fight, meaning I was in the right fight. Do you see that? But we can also say he fought the fight well. I think both things are present here. Not just the fact that he did well with it, 
but it's a worthy endeavor. When measured against eternity, there is no more worthy endeavor than to fight this battle well. I want you to remember this too. Please keep in mind that we are all engaged in this battle. Regardless of our occupation, we are all engaged in this battle. Our calling is to serve the Lord with all that we have or all that we are. No matter what your occupation is, that your calling in life is to serve the Lord with all that we have and all that we are. For the committed disciple of Christ, there is no dichotomy between what we do as an occupation and our calling as a Christian. Now, I know this is one thing that that creeps into our lives. We have the work me, and then we've got the the church me, then we've got the basketball game me, and then we've got the fatherly me, and I mean, by the time you get through, you've got 150 me's. Not according to the Bible. There's one you, and you have a calling. And that calling can include... like in this room, 30 different occupations. But whatever you do, you should do it for the glory of God. If we practice law, it should be for the glory of God. If we teach kindergarten, it should be for the glory of God. For some, the good fight may very well be a mother who stays home and raises godly children to the glory of God. Not with some resentment that, look what's happened to me, you know. I didn't get to finish my career. No, no, see what you're doing is you're putting a dichotomy there. Whatever it is you're doing, you do it for the glory of God. That's exactly what Paul said in in Colossians. He says, whatever you do in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through through him to the Father. We We need to get this dichotomy out of our souls right now. Whatever you do, I don't want to go through every possible occupation that we may have in here, but I hope you get the point. Whatever it is that you do, whether you get paid for it or not, you do it for the glory of God. Now, to the degree that you're having trouble grasping that, you've made this dichotomy in your life. You see, to the degree you don't understand the fact that you can worship as you work, you can worship through your work, You can worship in the way that you do your work. And I'm not saying you carry a Bible around and have to wear a Christian t-shirt to the plant. No. But if you're an instrument tech out at the plant, you can do that as unto the Lord. I hope that makes sense. Paul says then, I have finished the course. He's completed the race. The course that was set out for him when God judged him faithful and called him to the task in the first place. Now, carefully here, it's not that the race has been won. Otherwise, Timothy's ministry would be unnecessary. Do you see that? It's not finished. Paul's leg in it is finished. Anybody, if you've ever watched track, or maybe, maybe once every four years you watch the Olympics, and there are relays in the Olympics. You know, there may be a relay that's... a uh, a 1,600-meter relay, one of the most challenging and exciting of the relays, where you have each person runs 400 meters, one lap around the track. But then when that first person gets through, the race is not over. The person hands a baton to someone else, and that hopefully there's a smooth handoff. Hopefully there's no argumentation there about the, no sadness that I'm fixing to hand the handoff. You see, if you've given your all for that first 400 meters, 
you're more than happy to hand that baton off to somebody else. In fact, you better be happy to do it. Otherwise, you hadn't given your all. If you get to the end of the 400 meters, you must be at a 400, you know what I'm talking about. If you get to the end of the 400 meters, you, you are exhausted if you've really run. And then you hand it to the next person who does the same thing. They're exhausted. They hand it to the next person. And finally, finally, the race is going to be over at some point. There will be a last generation of those who are ministers, of those who are, who are lawyers, of those who are professors, of those who are mothers. You see, there, there's going to be a last generation sometimes, but unless it's us, we're going to hand it off to somebody else. And we need to be spent we need to spend our lives in a worthy task, as Theodore Roosevelt once said. And then hand it off to somebody else with joy and with happiness that they're willing to take the baton. So it's not that the race is won, otherwise Timothy's ministry would not be necessary, but it's that Paul has finished his lap. He's done his part. So then he calls Timothy to run his lap as well as he can possibly run it. Give it your all. By the time you come back around this corner, sport, and by the time you make that last turn, I don't want you to be smiling. I don't want you to have the energy to smile. I want you to take your last step and hand the baton off with no energy left. Isn't that the way that you want to go to? Don't you want to spend your life in a worthy cause? I do. And he can't be deterred by persecution to use my metaphor, my illustration, you run that relay in some, in some venues, people may be booing you the whole time you're going around the track. If you're an athlete and somebody's booing you the whole time you're going around, are you going to stop and look up into the stands and say, well, same to you. you know, throw the baton at them. You know. No, you're not. Are you? You're going to ignore that booing and you're going to keep running, aren't you? Because you're not doing it for that person that's booing you you're doing it for your team. And when you run the race that's set before you here, you're doing it for the Lord. And yeah, people are going to boo you because you're running for the wrong country. You're running under the wrong flag as far as they're concerned. What do you expect them to do? If we're in the, if we're in the Olympics in 1972 and running that particular race again in Munich against the Russians and against the Germans, I don't expect them to be cheering for the Americans. I expect them to be booing us, hoping that we'll lose. But we don't stop. As a result of his faithfulness to the task, Paul can say that he's kept, his, he's kept the faith. The word faith here being used in its full breadth of meaning, including the act of trusting and also the content of what is believed here. The, the word pistis in the Greek language does have a breadth of meaning. And I think that the way Paul's using it here it includes a lot of that breadth. It's a very rich word. Likewise, Timothy's called upon to keep the faith. So you're called upon to keep the faith. I'm called upon to keep the faith. To be nourished in the faith. To endure persecution and suffering for the faith. And to fight the perversions of the faith that he's so often called the false teachers. In verse 8, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And most of this verse we'll cover next time. But I would like to cover the judgment that he, about which he speaks. And to do that, I'd like for you to turn back to probably the, 
the passage that has the clearest rendering of it, and that's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And as you turn there, I want to remind you that there are two major judgments that will occur in eternity, and we need to make sure we keep those distinct in our thinking. Because to bleed these judgments with one another, to blend them or to synthesize them is, is to make a great error. The two judgments about which I speak are first the judgment seat of Christ, also known as the Bema, B-E-M-A, that's a Greek word for judgment. The judgment seat of Christ is probably had its had historical roots in a, in a particular judgment seat that Paul had witnessed himself with, with a Roman ruler. But that's a judgment for believers, there will only be believers at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I know you've seen this. Some of you have seen it a hundred times. Some of you might not have seen it all. But let me at least draw a schematic out to help you to keep in your mind when these two judgments occur. Because they're separated by approximately 1,007 years. Or at least some, something in that range. If we were to, to recognize the church age as having begun on the day of Pentecost, which we should recognize that, um, because of time, I'll give you the reasons for that some other time. But, but the, the church age unfolds. The next prophetic event in the outworking of God's purpose is the rapture of the church, which I'll represent by an arrow going upwards. The rapture of the church is distinguished from the second coming because the rapture of the church is a movement from earth to heaven, whereas the second coming is a movement from heaven to earth. Another distinguishing factor is that that Jesus never comes down to earth. His feet never touch the ground at the rapture of the church or the resurrection of the church. They certainly do touch the ground in the second advent. But these two events are separated by approximately seven years, a seven-year period on earth that is known as the tribulation, also known as the great tribulation, sometimes known as the time of Jacob's distress, and then Daniel's 70th week. So you'll hear it described as all those. This will be the worst time in human history that takes place on earth. We won't be here. You and I won't be here if we're believers right now. There will be believers that will become believers in the tribulation. It starts with only unbelievers. But there will be a period of time in, in, Ur, on, in heaven, which I'll represent here and call the JSC, not for Johnson Space Center, but for the judgment seat of Christ. This is an evaluation for believers only. Believers only. Now, as time unfolds and our Lord comes back in what the, the minor prophets call the, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord which begins with the most terrible judgment, the outpouring of God's wrath on God's enemies, the enemies of Israel, and then ends with, that, that particular day ends with the, the greatest blessing the world has ever seen. Then there's a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. There's another revolution that comes up right at the end of that reign where that Jesus personally puts down. And then time is over in that sense. And then there'll be a new heavens and new earth and, and new Jerusalem and, and those things that you've studied before. It's at this point, at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, and I'm going to put another throne here, and we're going to call it the Great White Throne Judgment. Now, the, you see that these two judgments are separated. They're two distinct judgments. They're separated by approximately 1,007 years. The only reason I put the seven years here, this, the tribulation is a seven-year, shortened seven-year period. The judgment seat of Christ is occurring during this, and since we're outside this time, I'm just going to take this seven years and say that's how, that's how we would measure that. But there is a long separation between them. Don't synthesize them together. The, the judgment seat of Christ, believers only. The great white throne, unbelievers only. At the judgment seat of Christ, there is no condemnation to hell there. If you find yourself at the judgment seat of Christ, even if you haven't lived a life that's glorified God, you're okay. 
Now, you may be, you may be ashamed shortly. You're going to look into our Lord's eyes and He may evaluate you poorly, but you're not going to hell. That's a, that's a for sure. There is no, you know what, I changed my mind. After evaluating you, you shouldn't be here in the first place. You know, there is none of that at the judgment seat of Christ. On the other hand, if you should happen to find yourself at the great white throne, if you're standing in the line and you say, hey, what are we doing here? Someone says, you didn't hear, this is the great white throne judgment. You're in big trouble then. Because there's no positive evaluation there. Doesn't matter how good you were at the great white throne, it is sadly, there's, there's one evaluation, and that is condemned. And I'm sure that if, if we observe this at all, if we observe it at all, I think the only way we could observe that at all is to have a resurrection body. I don't think we could take it in the bodies that we have right now. We, we, would, be, we would be so overwhelmed with grief at what is happening that I, I think that it would uh, obliterate us, my opinion. But, I, but what I want you to tell you is there is no glee here at all, not on the part of the people who are being condemned and not on the part of God. But there is justice executed that is consistent with the infinite perfections of his character. So what I want you to see is that there are two separate events, one for believers only, one for unbelievers only. Now, just as a matter of, because somebody is going to ask, they may say, well, when do the Old Testament saints receive their resurrection body and their reward? There's only a hint of that, but in my view, they receive it right before this event takes place right here, right before the beginning of the millennial period. Although there's not, I don't have a specific passage that I could dogmatically say, if, if you want to come up with something different, I'm not going to argue with you, but... I think you'd be wrong. I think that's, that's where it is. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul has, has given this just brilliant exposition on what happens after we die. And, and I use this at funerals. This is a scripture reading that I often read. In verse 9, he says, Therefore we have, have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Remember that we here are believers. He's only talking to believers right now in this passage. And this is what we ought to have as our ambition. He's, this is an ought phrase. It's not necessarily a, a, a phrase that indicates how it really is going to be. Some of us are not going to have that as our ambition, but this is what we ought to have. And then he says, a very solemn moment, for we, we must all appear. The we again is or the, Paul and the Corinthian believers and everybody that reads this. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, this right here, that each one may be recompensed. There's no other way of getting around that. Paid back for the deeds that are done in the body, which means that the only evaluation that's going to occur at the judgment seat of Christ is going to be an evaluation of the deeds that were done in this body, not in the resurrection body. The, the clock stops ticking on your faithfulness once you go on to heaven because then it's not really faithfulness. It's not faith anymore because you're, you're there with him. The work that's being spoken of here is work that takes place here. Uh, I know we've covered this passage before. We just have a few minutes. Let me, let me just hit the high points for you. For the deeds done in the body, according to what he's done, here's that Christian four-letter word, work. It's not a bad word. We're supposed to work after we're saved, not for our salvation, whether good or bad. Now, there's, there's two Greek words there that at least bear a mention. The Greek word agathos, which is the Greek word for good there, is one of two primary words that the Greeks used for good. Uh, they, they used the word kalos, which is the word beautiful. It also could descri describe God, to, to be sure, but that's not the one that's used here. Uh, this is, this is a, a, a word that means something that is, it is intrinsically good, something that has good of lasting value. It's a very special word for good. 
Now, the word that's translated bad there is, is not a normal word that's translated bad. It's kind of an, a bit of a unique word. It's the word phallos. Now, the word phallos could most likely or, or even better be translated worthless. So, you see, the things that we do in the body are either going to be rendered or, or recognized, rather, recognized by our Lord as being something that had lasting value to them or something that was worthless. Now, the bar against which it's measured is eternity. Do the things that we do have lasting value with regard to eternity, or do they have, or are they worthless when it comes to eternity? Now, not everything that you do is going to be evaluated here. What shirt you t- decide to wear tonight, what tie you decide to wear on Sunday, uh, those, those are, are decisions that don't have a moral component to them. There's no eternal component to them. But we are all given opportunities to serve. And did you use that opportunity to serve with something that's going to have lasting value, or is it... Or did you waste your life? Was it, did you waste your life in worthless pursuits? There, there doesn't seem to be any specific sin mentioned here. Uh, Jesus is not going to bring up, you know, Ellis, and I know what you did on, the, on your 24th birthday. You know, I'm, I'm really ashamed of that. That's, that's, not, that's not the kind of thing that's going to be brought up. It's going to be your faithfulness on the whole. Were you faithful or were you not faithful? This is what Paul is referring to. This evaluation is what Paul is referring to when he says that, that in the future, not right now, but in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, is to award to me on that day and not to me only, but also to all those who have loved disappearing. That's what he's talking about when he talks about the future. He knows that, to, to, to put it in academic terms, you know, at the end of the course there's going to be a test. Or better put, at the end of the course, you will be evaluated. I, I know in some courses now there's no, there's no final. You know, you, you, I don't know. I don't, I don't agree with that. I think there should be evaluations of a student's work. But there's going to be an evaluation of your life and mine. And the Lord is going to be a gracious judge. The, the text tells us here, we'll study it next week, that he's a righteous judge. He's a fair judge. It'll be the most fair evaluation you've ever received in your life. I think it'll also be a gracious evaluation. I don't think God's going to look the other way at unfaithfulness, but I think it's going to be gracious. But I leave you with this. I think sometimes we overlook some of the things that are going to be evaluated. You may overlook how you treat the checker at the stop and go. How well you tip that poor waiter. You know, how well you behave in traffic. How well you hold your tongue in church when someone might offend you. Those, you know, if, if we realize that it's not necessarily the huge things. How well did I do when I was invited to speak before 50,000 people at Promise Keepers? Well, maybe that's how you're evaluated all, on it all. Maybe it was what you did that day leading up to that. You know, all that's going to be part of the package of faithfulness. So don't overlook the little things as well as the big things. Alexis de Tocqueville observed that the final aim of life is placed beyond life. What we choose, what we do in time, has eternal ramifications. Let us live our lives in such a way as when it is coming to a close, we can have the confidence that Paul expresses here that the evaluation that we're going to have in the future will be a favorable one.